Hey everyone, I'm Lucas Prado, Sanctus Pickering Pastor, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by enabling people of all ages to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. I hope you're really excited to the message today. Hey, Sanctus Church, my name is Joel. If we haven't met before, I really wish that I could be with you in person. Thank you for watching the video. We've arrived at the end of our five-week sermon series on the book of Ezra. This book of the Bible that most of us probably couldn't find without a table of contents, and before this series, probably couldn't say what the book is about. But God, I think, has spoken to us really profoundly through this series. And I thought the best way to begin the last chapter in the story is to do a recap of what we've covered so far. In week one, I also had the privilege of sharing with you about how God always keeps his promises no matter what. The people of God were in exile in Babylon. So much history had taken place up to that point. I showed you the Old Testament timeline on the screens to see everything that happened since Abraham all the way to the exile in Babylon. The people, when we start the story in Ezra, the people of God are a far cry from the golden era under King David and Solomon. David, who captured the city of Jerusalem for God and his people, and Solomon, who built the temple, they're both destroyed. The city is in ruins, the walls are crumbled, and the temple is completely destroyed. And the people are in exile in a foreign land, in Babylon. And then King Cyrus comes on and the Lord moves his heart. He does whatever he has to do to make his promises come to be fulfilled. So the people of God get to go back and begin to rebuild. And we see that the entire rebuilding process all throughout the book of Ezra is rooted in the promises of God. God always does what he says and he moves whoever he needs to move to make it happen. That was week one. The promises of God is the underpinning of the whole conversation. In week two, we talked about the presence of both joy and sadness in the midst of rebuilding. And without going into too much detail for the sake of time, that was really personal for me because I've been around this church over a decade now and I've seen amazing things that God had done. And during the pandemic, when we weren't gathering and we're taking a long time to come out of it and rebuild, it's very discouraging and disheartening for me. Remembering what the old thing was like, even though new things were happening, I found that message really encouraging. And then in week three, Pastor Ange talked to us about opposition in the midst of rebuilding. And she said that it's normal. It's res- resistance is normal when you're doing the thing that God calls you to do. And we should expect nothing different. The exiles faced opposition from their enemies and from the people who stayed behind. And this kind of opposition, even for us in our lives, as we do the things of God, and as a church, as we rebuild, we should expect it and to trust God in the midst of it. And then last week, Pastor John preached about the centrality of God's word in times of renewal. In the same way that Ezra devoted himself to the study and observation of God's word and to holiness, we should too, especially in times of rebuilding. I mean, it's great to rebuild, but without the firm foundation of God's word being devoted to and observed, it's all going to be for nothing. That was a great message last week. Now today, in the final chapter, we're going to talk about the role of confession and repentance in times of rebuilding. The story in Ezra takes a bit of an unexpected turn. That's actually kind of one of the themes of the book of Ezra. It doesn't ever really go the way you think it's supposed to go. And now we have a very interesting conversation for us about confession and repentance. 
I have a little story for you about confession and repentance. My daughter Sophie, who I love to tell stories about, she's five years old. We were driving in the car the other day, and just out of the clear blue sky, she says to me, Daddy, I have something I have to tell you. I said, okay, Sophie, what's up? She's like, I have secret candy hiding spots in my bedroom for candy and chocolate. <laughs> and I laughed. Like, I wasn't sure if she was being serious, so I just kind of went along with it and said, Oh, really? Thanks for telling me. Where are they? She's like, well, I've got one in my closet. I've got one behind my bed. I've got one under my bed, under the sheets. I've got one behind my dresser, and I've got one behind the laundry basket. And she was so specific that I started to think, oh, man, she might be telling the truth. So when we got home, I said, Sophie, why don't you, can you show me where your secret hiding spots are? She said, yeah, sure, come on, Dad. And she brings me into her room, and she takes me to her closet. I put candy and chocolate in there. Come over here. I put it behind my bed. And it was so sweet and so genuine, and she was actually being honest. There was no candy in there because she'd eaten it all. But she's been to a few birthday parties, and we did an Easter egg hunt, and she's stashing a little bit of candy and chocolate in her room. A little sneak. But she was so sweet to tell me and to kind of like confess it to me without me even being asked. I mean, the stories like this really helped me understand, I think, what Jesus meant by childlike faith. She knew it was wrong and she admitted it. She told me without me even asking and she said she wouldn't do it again, but I definitely did not believe her, not for one second. She's definitely going to do it again, but now I know where to look. This series that we're in, in the book of Ezra, it's been kind of like a visionary pause moment for us as a church. And it's been super timely, I think. Amazing how God sets us up for that when we do our planning in the beginning of the year. This has been a good time to talk this through as a church. But we've been talking a lot about us in this series, like the corporate we, vision for where we're going. But in this last week, the focus is going to shift from us to we, excuse me, from us to me from corporate to personal. And, he, and here's the question that I want us to wrestle with today. Beyond serving and giving and literally returning to our church, these are things that we've talked about so far in this series, that's like one of the roles that we can play in rebuilding, serving, giving, and, and coming back. But beyond that, what is really our role individually to play in the big thing as a church? Getting beyond the, the corporate and, and the big group where do you fit in? Where do I fit in? And what's our role to play? If you're a leader in any way in our church, what's your specific role to play? God said a lot, I think, to our church in this series. And now I think he wants to say a few things to us individually in this message. So when we come to chapter 9 in the book of Ezra, Ezra has finally come on the scene. I explained in, in, the, in the first week that there were multiple groups of exiles who returned and even though the book is called Ezra, the first several chapters, Ezra's not even part of it at all. John introduced us to Ezra last week, and he was in the second group that returned from Babylon, like 60 years after the first group. And his job is to get the rebuilding project going again and to teach the scriptures to the people. He was devoted to the scriptures, and he was a teacher of the Torah and the Bible. And when Ezra gets there, he, you know, it says in chapter 8, he, he spends a few days returning the gold and silver and other vessels to the temple. He leads the people to offer burnt offerings to God like a good priest. But then he discovers something that leads into a complete breakdown. I mean, this guy is just distraught, as we're going to see, completely beside himself. And once again, in the story, in the book of Ezra, the story takes another unexpected turn. Here's what it says in chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me, Ezra, and said, The people of Israel 
including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, and several other groups. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Ezra says, When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled my hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Ezra has discovered a problem, and obviously by his reaction, he considers it to be a major problem. So what was it? What was the problem? Well, the problem was that the people of God did not separate themselves. That's the core of the problem. Now, this word separate or separate is a very important Old Testament word. It's the definition of the word holy, which, was, which is one of the most frequently used words in the Bible. If you were to say, what does it mean to be holy? The answer would be to be set apart, to be made separate. And so Ezra comes in and says they have not done the most important thing. They have not separated themselves, made themselves separate. Now this word is both, uh, uh, has both a, a literal and a figurative meaning. Figuratively, it's like a word picture. Being set apart is an image of holiness. It's like God takes his people and says, you are set apart. You're over here. You are different than everybody else. I speak to you differently. I provide for you differently. We have a different history together. And I've made a covenant to you that is different than everybody else. They are not here with everybody. They are set apart. But it also uh, has a literal meaning. They were commanded to literally separate themselves and be physically, geographically, and most importantly, spiritually set apart from the neighboring nations. We've got to go back again to Deuteronomy. This is before the people ever even enter the promised land that they were exiled from, that they have now returned to rebuild before they ever enter in. This is what Moses said from the Lord. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy, set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, he's chosen you to be his holy, set apart people, his treasured possession. That was the expectation going in. That's the way it's always been. But Ezra arrives in the ruins of Jerusalem and finds that the people of God have not done that. They have not separated themselves as God's holy possession. They've actually done the exact opposite, and they've made a grievous sin, so much so that they've got Ezra literally pulling his hair out. I guess that's where that phrase comes from. So what was the specific issue Ezra was upset about? He's upset because the people of Israel had intermarried with women from the neighboring peoples. Now this is really worth slowing down for because this can be so easily misinterpreted. And even, I think, when it's interpreted well, it still begs a lot of questions. So I would encourage you, if there's something that comes up here in the next couple of minutes, take it with you to your connect group. Take it with you to a pastor. Like, these are the good things to wrestle through in the Bible. I want to start with this. The Old Testament idea of intermarriage is very different than any modern definition of mixed marriage or interracial marriage or anything like that. It has nothing to do with race or ethnicity or skin color. It's a spiritual matter. Here's what uh, theologian Charles Fensham has to say about it. The reason for this attitude in Ezra has nothing to do with racism, but with a concern for the purity of the religion of the Lord. See, the best comparison would absolutely not be one person of one ethnicity marrying another person. It would be like a Christian marrying like a devil worshiper or a member of a satanic cult. The Bible is trying to say that if your heart is devoted to the things of God, 
How could you go and marry somebody who worships another God? How could you be in union with somebody who not only doesn't share your beliefs, but participates in all these other crazy satanic occultic practices? It doesn't work. And throughout the entire Old Testament, God is very clear on this. You cannot marry into peoples from other nations and cultures and, and religious systems. If you do that, it's a ticking time bomb and you will not be able to faithfully follow God. Now that may still seem offensive to our modern worldview, so I think let's keep digging. Let's go in a little deeper and find out why God and his prophets are so strong on this. I mean, they've got Ezra pulling his hair out. He thinks this is a huge deal. So let's try to understand why. I think there's at least three things that we need to know about what's going on. And the first is this. This is an ancient law that was established before the people of God ever entered into the promised land. So going back again to Deuteronomy chapter 7, the same chapter we just referred to, but earlier on. Moses says to the people, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out many nations before you, seven nations, I'm not going to read them all, they're stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you've defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. So a lot to unpack here, but let's start here. This is actually last week's conversation. This whole thing is rooted in God's word. And this was given to the people centuries before this moment in Ezra. God has not changed his mind. He's not introduced a new unfair rule that they now have to follow begrudgingly. This was part of the original law God gave to his people before they ever even got the inheritance, the promised land. So what John talked about last week applies to this. It's a matter of the role of God's word and the authority of God's word in the midst of rebuilding. Ezra says, this is God's law. If we're going to be rebuild the temple and the walls and the whole thing, we have to do it on the word of God. But still, like, why so harsh? This is what a lot of people have issues with the Bible and Christianity about, quite frankly. Destroy them totally. No treaty, no mercy. A lot of people would say, how could I serve a God like that? How could I serve such a ruthless, vengeful God? These are the arguments that come up. So we got to go deeper into this from like an apologetic standpoint, which means from defending the faith and helping us understand who God is, we have to go a little bit deeper and it's, it's uncomfortable. The second thing we need to know about this conversation is that God was so severe about this and these peoples and not marrying into them because of, quote, their detestable practices. That's what it says in Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. Among them, idolatry, serving and worshiping and sacrificing to other gods. That's the first commandment violated. Sexual immorality, all kinds of crazy sexual stuff happening, bestiality, other things. And oppression of God's people, too, by the way. But the most extreme thing, and the reason I think why God is so strong on this matter, is because there was a very clear pattern of child sacrifice that was taking place in these neighboring nations. And there are numerous references to this all throughout the Old Testament, by the way. I, it's very uncomfortable to go into, but in order to understand what's happening and not be turned off to the whole thing altogether, let's just go quickly. 2 Kings 16.3, King Ahaz of Judah, quote, made his son pass through the fire. 
in the Valley of Hinnom, a place outside Jerusalem that was associated with pagan worship and child sacrifice. This practice is also mentioned in 2 Chronicles 28, where it says King Ahaz, again, notice this is an Israelite who has started practicing the, the religious practices, the detestable practices of these neighboring nations. He's a real-life example. Quote, burned incense in the Valley of Hinnom, burned his children in the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And then there's another one in Jeremiah 31 where God rebukes the Israelites for their practice of offering their children. I'm not even going to finish the sentence. It's unthinkably horrible. And so when we ask the question, why would God order such extreme measures to wipe these people out and to take their land and, and swear to them that they would not intermarry with them, we have to understand the stakes are so significant. And there was such deep evil and wickedness happening in the surrounding nations around Israel. God says, you cannot play games with this. You cannot play games. I, I think the question is not, how could we love, how could a loving God commit this like atrocity to wipe these people out and prevent marriage? But actually, the question is, how could a holy, loving God do nothing about it? And how could he not set up laws and, and guardrails for his people so that they're not led astray and led away from the heart of God? The, thir the third thing on this matter, as we just wrap up this little fun conversation, is that from a spiritual purity standpoint, intermarriage with the people from these cultures and these religious systems would create an, un an, an unavoidable and inevitable temptation for the people of God who marry them. Clearly, a person who's married to a pagan idol worshiper would be inclined or at least tempted to adopt that person's beliefs and practices. I like the logic that one scholar suggests when he says, if the Israelites weren't sensitive enough to obey God in something as important as marriage, they wouldn't be strong enough to stand firm against their spouse's idolatry. But God's concern is also very clear for the next generation. Fanchim again, he says, it was not just the influence on the spouse to the husband, but the influence of a pagan mother on a child that would ruin the pure religion of the Lord and create a syncretistic religion running contrary to everything in the Jewish faith. In the end, it was about the preservation of their very identity for generations to come. Now, like I said, you may still have tons of questions. The five minutes I just did on that is, is far from a full conversation. But here's the point. Ezra knows all this stuff. He knows the Old Testament. He's devoted to the scriptures. He knows all the history of God's people. He knows exactly what the neighboring nations do and what they participate in. He knows exactly what the consequences are, where this leads to. And so he was absolutely devastated. Tore his clothes, pulled out his hair, the Old Testament, by the way, that's, of course, where we get our saying from, but it's like this physical expression of grief and mourning. People started, like, gathering around him, and he sat there all day. It was a public way of expressing sorrow and repentance for sin. Doesn't sound fun, pulling their own hair out, but I think that's sort of the point. He was completely destroyed by this news. Now, Ezra sits there for a while, People start to gather around him, and at the end of the day, he stands up and launches into this amazing prayer of confession. And from his prayer of confession, we can learn several things about what confession really means from a biblical standpoint for our own lives. Here's what he says. There's a few verses here, so, so stay with me. I've, I've cut a couple of them out for time. But here's what he says, starting in verse 5. Then at the evening sacrifice... <clears throat> I rose from myself abasement with my tunic and cloak torn, 
fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord and prayed. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you, because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hands of foreign kings, as it is today. Verse 10, But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave us through your servants, the prophets, when you said... The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted with the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with impurity from one end to another. He's quoting De Deuteronomy here. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. He's saying, if you avoid this problem, you will get to live on in the land in peace and blessing. But if you cannot avoid it, that will be taken away from you. We've covered that in this series. What has happened to us, he says, is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Again, he's referring to the thing we just talked about. Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, Though because of it, none of us can stand in your presence. It's an amazing prayer of confession. We find a few like that in the Bible that we can learn from. And I think in this prayer of confession, we can learn and take away at least four things about what it means to, be, uh, to, to confess in a biblical way. The number one thing that we learn that we see here in this prayer is that confession needs to include an acknowledgement of who God is. That's how he starts his, his prayer, by ascribing lordship to God. He says, I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God. And then again at the end of the prayer, he says, Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. And he says that because true confession is rooted in who God is, in his authority and his righteousness and who we are in light of him. It's saying, you are here. You are God. You are judge. You are the holy one. You are the one who is truly set apart. And we come to you on our knees in knowledge of who you are. So that's the first thing. When we confess, we acknowledge who God is. The second thing we learn from this prayer is that confession should include an admission of guilt in detail. Like Ezra goes right into the problem in verses 10 and 12. He says, we violated your commands. We polluted your land with these detestable practices from our neighbors. You told us to go nowhere near for our own safety. We intermarried with the pagan nations against your will. It's a complete admission. I did it. And that leads into the third thing that I see here, which is a complete ownership of responsibility. He says what happens to us is a result of our deeds. There's no blaming. There's no excuses. There's no saying, well, they came and they tempted us. Or my friend, he was into it. and he, no, There's none of that. He completely owns it and says it's our problem. And by the way, Ezra is interceding on behalf of his people. He wasn't the one who intermarried with other people. He's being a good leader. He's leading the way and he's taking ownership for the whole group. And the fourth thing that I see here in this prayer of confession that teaches us about our own confession is that there's a total surrender of the results to God and his judgment. 
We see that in verse 15. He says, here we are. Here we are before you in our guilt. Do with us what you see fit. See, confession, I think, is actually a humble act when the results are left up to God. We come to Him and we admit what we've done. We acknowledge who He is. We own it and we take responsibility for it ourselves. And then we put the results in God's hands. Because then it's clear that the person confessing knows their place in relation to God, that He is the holy God. We are the ones who are weak and have violated His commands. Now, when we see this through the lens of the cross as Christians, we bring our prayers of confession to the throne of grace in boldness and confidence, not pride or vanity, but in humility, knowing that Jesus has already paid for them. And we'll get there in a minute. Ezra didn't have the cross to look to. This was 500 years before that took place. Yet still, he puts the results in God's hands. It's an amazing prayer of confession. One of the most beautiful and famous prayers of confession in all the Bible, of course, is David's confession in Psalm 51. David, the king who was over Israel in their golden era, before they were exiled and before everything started falling apart, even in the golden era of Israel under King David, he committed such a grievous sin. It's almost like this one. I mean, he had an affair. He committed adultery with another man's wife, Bathsheba. And then he had her, her husband, Uriah, murdered to try to cover it up. The whole thing was covered in lies. And then the prophet Nathan comes and confronts him in the power of God. says, I know what you did. God is not happy. You have to confess and repent. And in response to that confrontation, being found out in his sin, David writes one of the most incredible prayers of confession the world has ever seen. Just a few parts, not the whole chapter. He says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from all my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right and your verdict is justified when you judge. He takes complete ownership of it. He acknowledges who God is. He puts the results in his hands and says these beautiful words. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Beautiful, humble words in such horrible pain that comes from sin and the need to confess. Back to Ezra, the people hear this prayer gathered around him and they see how distraught he is. And now the question becomes, how do they respond? Ezra has responded. We've seen how he's reacted to this. How will the people respond? Moving into chapter 10, here's what it says. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, <clears throat> a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then uh, one of their leaders said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there's still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of the Lord and those who fear the commands of God, let it be done according to the law. Okay, we've got a few more things to unpack here before we're done. Now, first of all, the people and the leaders of the community, they do the right thing. They, ad they admit their guilt. 
They confess their sin in detail, and they don't just end with hollow words of confession, they move to repentance. They say that they're going to make a covenant to turn from their ways, and that's what true repentance looks like. It doesn't just end with words or empty promises. To repent means to turn. It literally means, it's like another word picture, turning from your path, turning from your ways, and going a different way. Confession only leads to repentance when it leads to corrected behavior and changed attitudes. So, we start off well here, and the people agree to separate themselves again. They say, we made a mistake by marrying into these people groups. We will now separate ourselves again. But honestly, it's like a really awkward attempt of repentance. And I think it raises just as many questions as it answers. Their solution to the problem is to send away their wives and children, to abandon them off on their own, so that the men who made the mistake could stay in Jerusalem and be protected and be part of a community while they just send the wives and children that they've committed to and begun to raise off on their own. I mean, that's a weird thing to read in the Bible, isn't it? How, how does that honor God? Well, it's very interesting as you look into this a little closer. And if I can offer just a brief lesson in biblical interpretation. Just because it's recorded in the Bible doesn't mean that it's a model to be followed. And it doesn't mean that that's what God wanted to happen. Let me ask you this question. Look at the text and tell me. Did God ask them to do this? I mean, the sin has been done. That's over. We can't go back in time and change history. Did God come and say, well, now that you've confessed, you need to abandon your wives and children? No, there's nothing in there about that. They say that they're trying to follow the law of God in accordance with the counsel of my Lord, it says. But if you want to be really specific, what the counsel of the Lord, the law says, is that the penalty for intermarriage is death. So if they really wanted to be letter of the law, they would have said, I'll go over there while you stone me. But they didn't say that. They said, you go over there while I stay here in comfort and security. I mean, what, what is going on here? I think the point is very simple and very clear. And it's the theme of Ezra and, dare I say, the entire Old Testament. These people don't have a freaking clue what they're doing. <laughs> they are so lost. They are so broken. And this is the point of the whole book of Ezra, okay? It's not the walls and the temple and the city that needs to be rebuilt. It's the people's hearts that need to be rebuilt. What is a, a, a new wall and a beautiful temple and a safe city? What's that going to do to the state of their hearts that are so broken? It's going to do nothing. If anything, it'll create more comfort and more security and lead to more apathy and more disobedience. What the people really need rebuilt is their hearts. And by the way, this is how the whole book of Ezra ends. It ends just like with a list of the people who committed this sin. And it doesn't even really tell us how the story is completed. This is sometimes used in the Old Testament as a literary device to, to put the onus back onto the reader. Say, you finish the story. How will you respond in your own life to this? But really, I, I think the main thing is that this is pointing to Jesus, 100%. Because what it's telling us is that the walls and the temple in Jerusalem, that's not the answer. That's not going to save them. They're just going to keep going in this cycle of sin and disobedience. Oh, sure, they'll come back and they'll confess and they'll repent and they'll make a covenant to change. But read the whole Old Testament. It's just going to keep going. So we fast forward 500 years. It takes a little while. But then God 
sent his one and only son into the world to break the cycle of sin, to heal what was really broken, to rebuild the people's hearts. It's not about a city or a temple or walls. It's about the life and love of Jesus Christ. It's about the love of God found in his son through Jesus Christ. And the only way that we can walk in the love of God, even here today for us, is through the power of his spirit that was given to us when Jesus was raised from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we have that same power in us that enables us to live holy and blameless in his sight even when we fall, even when we make mistakes. We look to Jesus and we look to the shed blood on the cross. Ezra wants to tell us that human leaders can't save God's people. God's people, including you and I, cannot save ourselves. Nothing has worked. God sent so many prophets. He's done so many things. Nothing worked except Jesus. And that is why Jesus comes into the world. That's why he leaves the kingdom of heaven and comes down as a baby, grows up and lives a life just like ours, a normal human life, laying aside the benefits that come with being God. Philippians 2 says he lived a life just like ours in ultimate humility, coming up as a baby, living a sinless life, resisting temptation, going all the way to the cross so that your heart and mine could be rebuilt and reborn. That is the rebuilding that we need. And when we come to the end of the sermon series here in the book of Ezra, we ask the question we started with today. What is your role to play? And what is my role to play in the rebuilding of our church? Beyond serving, beyond giving, beyond coming back and sitting in a seat on a Sunday. What's really your role? And the answer is so clear and so simple. It's personal holiness and devotion to God. That is what your role to play is at Sanctus Church as we try to rebuild and move closer and closer to what God is calling us to do as a church. And in order to be devoted, in, in order to have personal holiness, in order to walk with God. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to do all these crazy religious rituals. You just have to have a tender and open heart towards the Lord. And the question that we're getting at today is, what is the role of confession and repentance in rebuilding? The role of confession and repentance in rebuilding is your own personal holiness, your own freedom. And can I just say, as one of your pastors, your personal, John's told me this for so many years, I believe it to my heart. Your personal holiness and my personal holiness matters to the whole thing. So we can have all the corporate visionary conversations, they're important and they're needed, but it all comes down to me and to you. And what will we do with this? This book ends with this very unsatisfying cliffhanger. It doesn't resolve the story. It doesn't give us a pretty wrapped up ending. There's no bow on this. So we do. We turn the pages over to you and to I, and we ask, how will we respond? And if we want personal holiness, we have to have a conversation about confession and repentance. Now, there's two ways to go with confession and repentance. Number one is, is if you don't know Jesus at all. You don't know God. Maybe for you, what confession and repentance means is literally to confess that you need God. Confess that you need Jesus and repent from the way that you're living your life and to start following him. And I want to invite you this morning, if you're ready to do that, like church, be praying that the Holy Spirit would move right now in people's hearts. 
There is life and life to the full on the other side of repentance. Maybe that's you this morning. For many of us listening who are Christians, confession and repentance means something a little bit different for us. For us, we know that our, our salvation is secured. We are justified before God when we put our trust and hope in Him. But then you know what? We are still living in this fallen world, in our fleshy human bodies. We sin, we make mistakes. Is there something that you need to confess to the Lord this morning so that you can find freedom and wholeness? Do you need to repent of a way that you're living your life, of a thought pattern or a habit or something in your life so that you can walk in personal holiness, mainly for your freedom, by the way, and your joy in communion with God? But make no mistake about it, not to put pressure on. I say this to myself too, but your personal holiness matters to the whole church. That's the thing that matters most as we try to rebuild. So here's what I want to do as we end today. We're going to end a little bit differently. I'm going to invite uh, your site pastor to come and lead us in a time of prayer and response. And I just very simply want to read this verse and leave it to you at your site to go through with your pastor. 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So I just simply open this time by saying, Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come and speak to us. Come with your gentle, loving heart. Put your finger on whatever you may want to talk to us about this morning. Lead us into confession and repentance and holiness that you would be glorified, that we would have freedom in Jesus' name. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit the subscribe button to be notified when another episode releases. Well, that's it for today. May God bless you very much and have an awesome week.